There we go. Morning. It's a uh, it's a sad day today. By way of public service, I actually mean this in all seriousness. The uh, <laughs> every once in a while, <laughs> I do. Uh, the the Caribou Coffee uh, in Owings Mills is closing. Today is the last day. Uh, evidently, it was an underperforming branch. So, uh, yeah, it's very very sad. When, uh, when this church started, we were meeting in a movie theater, and uh, as a result, that uh, caribou was basically my office, so I spent many, many, many hours staying caffeinated there. So if, if you would, uh, if you want to have one, one last uh, trip to caribou for old time's sake, today's the day. So, Romans. Why did Paul write it? Over the years, people have had a whole bunch of different explanations for why Paul might have written the book of Romans. But one of the possible reasons, and one that makes more and more sense to me the more I study it, is that Romans is a theodicy. Does anybody know what a theodicy is? Not the Homeric epic. A theodicy. Sort of. Theodicy. Come, comes from, uh, actually, well, it, it, uh, you may remember the phrase we talked about earlier in Romans, dikaiosune theu. Anybody remember what dikaiosune theu is? Dikaiosune being righteousness or justice, theu of God. So the big question is, as you recall from back in, uh, in uh, chapters 1 and 3, was whether God, Paul is talking about God's own righteousness or whether he's talking about a righteousness that comes from God or maybe a righteousness that might avail before God. All of those are grammatically possible. But, uh, but uh, theodicy, if you switch them back around, has to do with the question of how God can be understood to be just. Theodicy is an effort to demonstrate God's justice, an argument for God. And of course, there are plenty of reasons why people have a hard time believing that he is, right? I mean, uh, for one thing, Folk often go through times of suffering or pain, and they say, why God, why me? More broadly, people will look at the reality of pain and suffering and say, how could a God that is all good and all powerful allow for this to happen? And the people that Paul was writing to in Romans, specifically the Jewish recipients of Romans, uh, even though they had come to believe in Jesus the Messiah, uh, Jewish people had... A big question about where God was and why he had not yet saved them from the oppression that they were under. This people that God had called into being, that God had blessed, was under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So they may well have been asking the question of how is God just, how is he who he says he is. And then specifically, the people that Paul was writing to in Romans, the Jewish recipients, may have said, well, hang on a second. If God has acted the way he has in Jesus, then what does that have to do with all the promises that he made before? Promises he made to Abraham, promises he made to Moses, to the people of Israel, that he made to David. How do we understand what God has done here in Jesus, given what he has done before? And this certainly was a question that bugged Paul. You get a sense that 
what we have here in Romans is the fruit of Paul's wrestling with this question for years and years, I think. And the question, I think, is sort of brought to a point in chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes, The law was brought in, Torah was brought in, so that the trespass might increase. And I remember when we were around that place, Chris West pointed to me, and he says, he pointed, pointed that, to that verse, and he says, so isn't this just a setup? Right? God gives Torah so that the trespass might increase, like it wasn't bad enough. Now we have Torah leading to the trespass increasing or becoming more powerful, more significant. And Paul's answer there is where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is good, but it doesn't answer the question, what about Torah? What is the whole point of what God was doing with Torah? And I want this morning to give you my best stab at an answer that's consistent with what Paul is saying. And I don't by any means suggest that this is definitive, but this is a way of thinking about this stuff that has really helped me. So if it helps you, I'll be grateful. And if it doesn't, there are plenty of other good ways to try to answer the question. But I wonder if what God has done isn't a matter of eliminating every possible excuse. Let me explain. Beginning, Genesis, God creates humanity, Adam and Eve. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and he gives them one rule. That tree, don't eat from it. That's it. Simple, right? You've got one guy between you and the goal line. Well, we know what happened, right? One rule, every possible advantage, but they fell. And the result of that was swift. Not only that there was a breakdown in the beauty of the created order, that the relationship they once had with each other that was one of, of pure intimacy and, and absolute trust suddenly became one of suspicion and hostility. We found that this earth that God had given to be fruitful, to nourish them, became something that they had to fight against. They had to battle in order to get their living out of it. They found their own consciences pricked as they realized that they had offended a righteous God, that they were guilty, and it was entirely their fault. And then we see not only the fact that Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, what's the very next thing that happened? One of their kids kills the other one. And then right after that story of Cain and Abel, we have this charming scene. A few generations later, Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. His brother's name was Jubal. Zillah had another son, Tubal-Cain. These are 
folks who are uh, fathers of uh, livestock and tool makers, and of course, the band. Jubal was the father of all who played strings and stringed instruments and pipes. God, from the beginning, envisioned both the orchestra and the concert band. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. You can imagine what kind of a domestic environment we had here. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. So we have murderous threats being breathed here by the fourth chapter of Genesis. And then in the fifth, we get, uh, sorry, the sixth, we get this story about the, the Nephilim where the, the, uh, they're on the earth in those days when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. This is a very, very disturbing situation. And so, what God, what does God do? He wipes the slate clean. Right? How many times have you had a problem and you've said, alright, Let's just wipe this slate clean and go back and start again. Right? Okay. That's a reasonable idea. Right? You, you call the help desk. What's the first thing they tell you to do? Turn it off. Wait 30 seconds and turn it back on. Did that fix the problem? Yes. Thank you. Right? <laughs> Seri- no, I remember when I was in the corporate world. I remembered. I'd have to, when I would call the help desk, I would, I would start the call saying, here's my problem, and I've already shut it off and turned it back on, and it didn't fix it. So God wipes the slate clean. He says, okay, got one family, and, and in, instead of the one commandment, here's what I'm going to do with Noah, he gives God uh, the, what's known as the Noahide commandments. God blesses Noah, this is Genesis 9, blesses Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This may be familiar. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky because I'm not going to have you be vegetarian anymore. Seriously, that's what he said. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I'm going to demand an accounting from every animal, from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by men shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made humankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So the rabbis break down sort of seven elements of the Noahide Commandments, but basically, this is about not being idolatrous. This is about um, not eating meat that is uh, the whole not eating meat with the lifeblood still in it. Basically, means you're not going to, uh, you know, eat, eat anything alive. Um, there is sort of an animal cruelty aspect here, but there also is a sense of respect for life, right? Okay, here's the deal: don't murder anybody, right? Don't be idolatrous. Go ahead, be fruitful, multiply. Very, very basic. Low bar, right? Try to be good people. You know, I think I think everybody's just basically good, right? Okay, that's the idea here. Everybody just kind of be good guys. We're all going to be okay, right? Not so much. What's the first thing that happens after this? After God throws the rainbow up in the sky, what happens? The first episode of incestuous rape in recorded history. So some problems, I think, are being foreshadowed here. 
We get that, and then we get Babel, where all the people of the world are together, and they're trying to do what? What are they building the tower for? To reach the heavens, right? This is, again, kind of like, why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? Because they thought then they could be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted to build the Tower of Babel so that they could ascend up to the heavens. This is, again, this clear category mistake of not recognizing that there's two name tags, the one that says God and the one that says not God, and you get the one that says not God, right? Big, basic problem of idolatry. So, clearly, this whole wiping the slate clean and giving some very basic general rules didn't work. So now what God does is he chooses one nation. Rather than speaking to the whole world through this one initial family, he picks one nation that is going to infect the world with righteousness. This is the way that God is going to fix the problem we cause, the way God's going to reconcile everything to himself, is he's going to choose one nation, and he's going to bless them so that they can be a blessing. And he's not just going to choose one nation, he's going to choose one crappy nation. He's going to choose the most stubborn, stiff-necked, obnoxious nation that you could possibly imagine. He, when he calls them, where are they? They're in slavery in Egypt. They have spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Why does he do this? He says this. He gives us this answer in Torah. He says, I've done this so that nobody will have any mistake about just what is going on, about who's the power behind this, Right? I'm, I am, I'm fielding a team with Kyle Bowler at quarterback, with Billy Cundiff at kicker, Frank Walker at safety, and I am going to win the Super Bowl. So he picks this people, and he blesses them so that they will be a blessing. He, gives them, he, he rescues them out of slavery in a way they could never have pulled off themselves. He, they're, they're enslaved to one of the world's major superpowers of the time. He gets them out of slavery defeats this great army, and he sets them up in land. He gives them a place to live, and he gives them what? Torah. And here we don't have one command, and we don't have sort of seven general commands. We have 613 specific commands. He is giving them what they need to establish a society. He gives them legislation that not only deals with things like how you uh, handle a situation where there's been an accidental death, or when they're, how do we have due process when somebody is accused of doing something? We have things that go to how you deal with public health issues. We have laws that deal with barbecuing. We have all kinds of laws that are to tell God's people just how they're going to live. And if you look, the, the attitude toward Torah in Scripture is a terribly enthusiastic one, enthusiastically positive Right, Paul, who was a young rabbi in a hurry, Paul would have come up loving Torah. He would have spent all this time learning it and studying it and, and, and trying to understand all the different ways that, that uh, the rabbis had understood it. And we read in, in the Psalms, we read things like Psalm 119. If you, it's the longest psalm. And, and it, it's this massive love song to Torah. Right? I was just reminded of this this week during, during the morning prayer. Psalm 119 came up. Just hear the beginning of it. Blessed, how blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to God's Torah. 
Blessed are they who keep his statutes, seek him with all their heart. They don't do wrong, but they follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your, your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden my word in your heart. Hidden your word in my heart, which is a much better way to do that. Let's try that again. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Yahweh. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Some of the rabbis envisioned that in the age to come, we're going to sit around and study Torah eternally, forever. That's their idea of a good time. That was Paul's idea of a good time. I confess that's kind of my idea of a good time too. But the point is, Torah is something that God has given that his people loved. It was a way to live. God had given us from Torah, given his people what they needed to live, to not just to live, but to thrive, to flourish, to be safe, to be healthy, to know the blessings that God had for them. And then, not just to hoard those blessings themselves, but to be a blessing to others. You'll remember where God put them. He put them in the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Delaware. You had to go through where they were to get from any place to any place else. So they were to be living billboards for the one true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one Lord of the universe. And through them, God was going to reconcile all the people to himself. People would see how well they were living and say, I want part of that. I want to know how come they're experiencing justice? How come their crops are so fruitful? How come they're so prosperous? How come they always win their games, even the one-run games? But it didn't work out so well, did it? And this is what Paul has described up to this point, isn't it? I mean, that's really what Romans 7 is. I find myself, when I want to do good, evil's right there with me. I mean, I love God's Torah, but then look at what I do. In my inner being, I delight in that. I really do. In my inner being, Paul says, I delight in God's Torah, but then I see that Torah is being used in another way. Waging war against the Torah that I know, but it's making me a prisoner by the sin working its way in me through Torah. We said last week there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Spirit, the Torah of the life-giving Spirit has set us free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian apologist, 
was once asked, what's wrong with the world? His answer, I am. Torah is not the problem. The fact that Torah ended up being used to bring about death is no fault of Torah's. We can't pin that one on God. We can't say to God, well, obviously, if you'd just given us a better Torah, then it would be all right. Now, I mean, seriously, how many times have you, oh, I just wish God would tell me exactly what to do. Read Leviticus. He's telling you exactly what to do. Didn't work. Well, maybe if, maybe if, you know, he just kind of graded on a curve and we could just sort of, you know, maybe like not murder and then it would be okay. I tried that. Didn't work. Okay, what... Okay, what if he put what if there were a perfect situation where we were all and, and there was everything was great, but only there's only one thing we couldn't do, we just have to not do that. That didn't work either. Torah itself is not the problem. We are the problem. But we are the problem because we have been weakened. As we have been weakened, then it is possible for Torah to be hijacked by sin. Paul says here in Romans 8, 3, what Torah was impotent to do in that it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. as for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous decrees of Torah might be fulfilled in us, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It seems like what Paul is saying is that God was planting this hook all along. What God is doing here, knowing that it is our flesh, our weak flesh, that makes us unable to fulfill the righteous requirements of Torah. And knowing that what sin does is it takes advantage of that and it uses what God gave for good, the law, the commandment, whether if you're a Jew, it's the actual commandments of Torah, or if you're a Gentile, what your conscience tells you is right and wrong. Sin takes those things in order to destroy us, in order to crush us, in order to defeat us. But here's what God does. God takes on that sinful, corrupted, fallen, mortal flesh self. And he walks around among us living the lives that we live, but is without sin when he does. And so what he does is he ends up concentrating all of the power of sin in the flesh. But whose flesh? It's the time when you say Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. He concentrates all of all of sin's power in the flesh 
Jesus. And Jesus, being righteous, being the only one who doesn't have anything coming to him, who has not violated any of that, Jesus takes it all. story is probably familiar in all the ways you've seen it told where Aslan takes upon himself the death penalty that was due Edmund. And of course Edmund is a stand-in for all of us because we all betray God and we all rightly deserve death. And Aslan takes that penalty on himself, but Aslan, because he has done no wrong, according to to the rules that govern the universe. Aslan, by his sacrifice, undoes this penalty of death. And so Jesus takes upon himself all of this sin. And when God condemns sin in the flesh, God condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus broken, pierced, dead for our sake. And because Jesus is fulfilling those righteous requirements of Torah, all those penalties that come upon the sinner, he gathers up the power of sin and blows it up. Think about that scene at the end of the Matrix where Neo dives into the body of Agent Smith and he blows him up. Or think about the end of Lord of the Rings. Forgive me if I'm giving away the spoiler for you who haven't seen it. Sauron has concentrated all of his power in that ring. And so when Frodo throws it into Mount Doom and is burned up in the fires, all that power has been concentrated in that one place and then all of it can be destroyed. All of it. I think that's what Paul's talking about here in the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is Torah. The sting of death is sin. And sin uses Torah to bring death to us, but. God had something else in mind. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A couple months ago, I had a great dinner with a friend of mine who's a rabbi. We were talking about this whole question of God choosing people, this whole question of how we can be acceptable to him, really the question of kind of who's good enough, who rates. And he was explaining that from his perspective, yeah, God's got a special relationship with the Jewish people, but really for everybody, God just basically wants you to pretty much be a good person. This is the no-hide commandments. You know, try try not to kill anybody and uh, don't be an idolater and it's probably going to work out okay for you. And I remember saying at the time, you know, I wish I could believe that. That would make conversations like this one a lot 
less difficult because then I wouldn't have to say, well, actually, I believe that uh, Jew and Gentile alike are captive to the power of sin and that we only get to be released through the blood of Jesus. I remember thinking, you know, it would be a lot easier if I could just say, well, as long as you're, you know, pretty good, then it's all going to be okay. The more I thought about that conversation, the more I realized, you know, I'm glad that I believe this good news that Paul gives us. Truth is, if we were graded on a curve, if the standard were, you know, are you pretty good, I don't think I would come out very well. My wife is agreeing with me on this. Every once in a while, this happens. The good news is you don't have to try hard to be good enough, and there is no vague, amorphous standard for being good enough. There is a very clear standard for being good enough, and you don't fit it. You don't make it. I don't make it. None of us makes it. Only Jesus made it. But because Jesus made it, he was able to lure all of that power of sin into his own flesh and to use that Torah that sin had used to abuse us. He used that as the vehicle to flip the whole thing. And so, Paul tells us, as for sin, chapter 8, verse 3, He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As for sin, he condemned it in human flesh in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us. We don't live according to the flesh, Paul says. We live according to the Spirit. Thanks be to God for that. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the ways in which you know us so well. You're so gracious to us that you don't allow us to get away with what we think might work. I'm grateful for the ways that you end up leaving us without excuses, without alternatives. Because we know that in our weak flesh, we would choose the alternatives that are indeed alternative to what you would have for us, to your best for us. We pray that we would be people who walk not according to the flesh, who don't serve an old master that has been rendered impotent, but that we would be people who walk by your Spirit. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand as we close our time together.